Okay. Um, I think we did through verse 2 last time. Is that what you all recall? Or do we get a little bit further in uh, chapter 12? Yeah, let's just start in verse 3, and if we covered a little bit of this last week, we can review. So, so in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Um, actually, let's just, uh, someone want to read 3 through 11 for us? 3 through 11? Who can do that? Verses 3 through 11? Bruce, thank you. In the womb, he took his brother by the heels and his maturity, he, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is my name. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice. Wait for your God continually, a merchant in whose hands are all talents. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labor. They will find between me no iniquity which would be sin. But I have been All right, so what is verse 3 a reference to? He took him by the heel. Okay. So it seems strange because in verse 2, it seems like his dispute is against Judah, the people of Judah, and then he goes to this historical reference about Jacob himself. Why do you think that he, he refers to it in this way? Why go back to the historical character of Jacob when referencing the way that the people are behaving here? Braden? Okay. I think that's what's going on. They're, they're acting the same way as their forefather Jacob, who was the supplanter, the usurper. He grabs his brother's heel, right? And then he contends with God when he grows older. And then... Uh, verse 4 talks about that a little bit more. He meets with God at Bethel, the house of God, this place where God appears to him in a vision. If God could work in the life of Jacob to take him from being a usurper and a deceiver to being one who meets with God, what can God do for the people of Israel who are living in idolatry and wickedness? Same thing, right? Um, and so there's, there's all of this, uh, just this scenario in which the people continually go after their idols, 
living with lies and deceit. So verse 12 of the previous chapter, Ephraim surrounds me with lies and deceit. How is Jacob described? As a liar and a deceiver, right? And so even though he's talking about the people of Israel, to the extent that Jacob is the father of both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, including Benjamin, uh, they're behaving like their forefather. God showed mercy to the one that went before them, and God can work in their lives again, just like he did in Jacob's life. And we see a call to that, I think, in verse 6. So what is verse 6 calling them to do? Okay, and why do you say repent? Because it says return. Why do you say repent? I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay, yeah. So in the Old Testament, the word, the phrase return to God is kind of synonymous with repentance that we see more often in the New Testament. And so, um, yeah, God is calling the people of Israel to repent. And what is the demonstration of their repentance in verse 6? Okay, waiting for God, which then God responds by being merciful, right? Okay. Um, if they wait for God, God will be... If they observe kindness and justice and wait for God, God is going to uh, show kindness to them. Uh, we see parallels to this in other places. So Micah 6.8 is probably a familiar passage. What does God require of you? To do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Uh, different places in the law. Uh, treat kindly the orphan and the widow. Do not oppress the foreigner in your land. Use a just balance and fair weights. Um, honor God and love your neighbors yourself. All of those ideas are expressed in different synonymous phrases. And here it's described as observing kindness and justice. I think because it's set in contrast to what we see earlier in the book. For example, when it talks about uh, their iniquity, he talks about their deceit. He talks about, um, I was trying to find earlier in, in uh, chapter 7, he talks about them being described as adulterers, as being an abomination. Um, all of these different things are their, are their actions of sin. And if they observe kindness and justice, it's a sign that they are genuinely repenting. So, Sometimes people describe repentance in terms of changing your mind. Is that part of repentance? Yes. Is repentance more than just a change of mind? I mean, it has to be for it to be a genuine reality because mm, we're dealing with something different than the idea that a lot of kids are brought up today like believing in Santa Claus, right? Does believing in Santa Claus and then not believing in Santa Claus affect your behavior a little bit. Some people think it's a really big deal, but it's a fairly minor effect on the course of your life, right? But if you say, I should obey God, I'm not obeying God, I should obey God, or if I just believe in facts, 
it's possible just to have a change of mind. There are, there are people who don't have a relationship with God who believe that there is a God, for example. So repentance has to be more than just an acknowledgement of certain facts. It has to be a turning from something to something. You've heard me say this verse a lot, but in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 1, they're described this way. They turned from idols to God to serve God and to wait for a son from heaven. This is an Old Testament parallel. If you return to God, observe kindness and justice, wait for your God continually, it's a sign of that genuine relationship with God. It says, A merchant in whose hands are false balances loves to oppress. In verse 7, what is Ephraim's attitude in verse 8? Get Ephraim's attitude there in verse 8. Okay. Do those things tend to go hand in hand? Why? Yeah, we feel like we don't need them. Okay. I think someone's down there trying to get in, Bob or Evan. You got it. Thank you. Um, so. Uh, if we think that we're successful apart from God, why would we turn to God, right? Notice the last phrase in verse 8. It says, In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. So not only is he trusting in himself instead of God, but he's being self-righteous. He thinks there's nothing that anyone can accuse me of. But, what was God's accusation in... Um, the previous chapters. What were some of the things that God's been accusing them of? Anybody remember? I know it's been a few weeks since we've gone over some of these other ones. Yep, so they're worshiping idols. That's the big one that's kind of the root of all of their problems. Okay, yeah, giving idols credit for all their blessings, okay. Um, in chapter 6, verse 9, or verse 8, he says, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. As raiders wait for a man, a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. So, there is physical and spiritual immorality. There is uh, symbolic and actual murder, hatred, all of those sorts of connected things. Um, and Ephraim's attitude is, hey, I haven't done anything bad. And I'm sufficient in myself. Do we see any parallels of that in our society today? Chapter 12, verse 8. I've become rich. I've found wealth for myself. That I've done nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, that is... So there was a statement that um, the people who set about founding the United States were influenced by writings of various people who believed in concepts like that absolute power corrupts absolutely. There are rare exceptions to that rule, that if you get a lot of power and a lot of money, you remain, humanly speaking, a good person. Most people don't. Most people get 
power, feel like they're above um, anyone else accusing them of wrongdoing, anyone else being able to stop them from what they want, and then they start going and doing whatever they feel like doing. That's Ephraim's attitude, and the correction to it is verse 9. Who's actually in charge in this story? God is. Ephraim says, look at me, I've become successful. God says, look back and see who's been with you from the beginning. Who's been standing behind you? Who's the reason that you have had the riches that you've had? It's because I've given them to you. He says, I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. This could be either a reference to them becoming wanderers again for a time or them returning back to observing like the Feast of Booths and other things that they were supposed to do that they had kind of abandoned because they were doing all of these idolatrous acts. Uh, both are true historically uh, and, and possible in, in, this, in this verse. How about verse 10? Did Ephraim go their own way without any warning from God? No. God sent one guy to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. No, verse 10, I have spoken to the prophets, plural. I gave numerous visions. Through the prophets, I gave parables. So, God is not at fault here. God has warned them. God has been patient with them. God is appealing to them again to repent. And um, our attitude would be kind of like Jonah. Your time is up. We hate you. Let's get rid of you, right? God's attitude is, even for people like Nineveh, and the fascinating thing is, and I'd have to look up the, the time period of Jonah versus this, um, not terribly far apart historically, the people of Israel had the attitude that the Assyrians were the most wicked people on the face of the earth, so they were justified in hating them. And they were bloodthirsty people, right? They murdered their enemies. They made examples of any who opposed them. They were a cruel and selfish people. And yet, the people of Israel are behaving much the same way, yet having the attitude of, look how amazing and wonderful we are, and God warns them and they don't repent, and God sends Jonah, and the people of Nineveh are like, let's put sackcloth on all the donkeys too, just in case God needs that to show that we're serious about the fact that we've done wrong. Now, was it a genuine, lasting, complete conversion kind of repentance? No, but their response of acknowledging their sin delayed God's judgment for a long period of time. And yet, God's own people here, in verse 11, there's this question, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless, morally speaking. They sacrifice bulls in Gilgal. Their altars are like the stone heaps beside the firs of the field. So, when I've driven from here uh, out through some of the farmland, and if, particularly if you go out like walking along there, certain parts, like, you just see um, heaps of rocks everywhere. They plow the field, these rocks kick aside. And farmers used to stack them on the edge of the field just to get them out of the way so they could plant their crops. Their altars, he's saying, are so numerous, they're like those heaps of stones by the edges of the field. 
from where farmers have plowed and turned over rocks and thrown them over the edge. There, the, the land is filled with idolatry. Um, someone read 12 through 14 and then 1 through 3 of the next chapter. Who would be willing to do that for us? Bob, thank you. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a while he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. <coughs> Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his reproach to him. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal, he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew, which, will, which soon disappears, like chaff, which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from the chimney. All right, so verse 12, he's going back to the historical illustration of Jacob, their ancestor, right? Tell me about Jacob's story. What does he do? When he's working for Laban, what, what, what's his job? He's a shepherd. So he's out in the wilderness among the people who wandered, keeping sheep. And then verse 13, it says, But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. What prophet do you think he's referring to? Brayden? Probably Moses, potentially Joseph, but probably Moses, because Joseph was the one who brought them down. So it's probably referring to Moses who brings them out. So he jumps from the historical example of Jacob, back to the historical record of the people of Israel. And yet, Ephraim's response is to do things that provoke God to anger. Uh, someone maybe turn over to 2 Kings 17. Actually, let's all turn there for a minute. 2 Kings 17. sort of a preview jumping forward of what's going to happen with Israel. Mm. Verse 5, the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And then in verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile into Assyria and settled them in these various cities of the Medes. Why does this take place? We'll look at verse 7. Why, why does this happen? The thing that Hosea is warning them against. Why does this happen? Okay. Who did what? Yeah, God kept pointing back to this over and over again. I brought you out of Egypt. I broke the power of the gods of Egypt. I showed you that I am the one true God and you went after both the gods of Egypt, the whole calf thing, and the gods of the Canaanites. 
So it starts out with uh, Jeroboam making calf gods like they did at the mountain when Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments and then comes back down. They make calf gods like they saw in Egypt, and that's what Jeroboam does in Samaria when he sets up this parallel system of worship. But then it doesn't stop there. They go into doing all of the different idols of the people of the land of Canaan, the Baals and the Asherim and all that. So verse 10 sacred pillars and ashram and burn incense, just like the nations God put in exile before them. Verse 12, they served idols. Verse 13, he warned them through prophets, turn. Verse 14, they did not listen but stiffened their neck. They rejected his statutes and his covenants. They went after the nations. They forsook the commandments of the Lord. They made for themselves molten images even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And it didn't stop there. Then they start worshipping and following the practices of the gods even further abroad, like Molech and all of them. They made their sons and daughters practice th pass through the fire, practice divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. And then he talks about the fact that... Um, Judah did not keep the commandments either. But um, if we go back to Hosea, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. God is not, uh, <clears throat> God's not like us. Our anger tends to be very quick-tempered. Mm. Let's say somebody grabs the last loaf of bread that you were going to buy in front of you at the grocery store or something like that. We get upset about things like that, right? God's anger toward the people of Israel is not on the basis of just annoyance, right? God has legitimate reasons, has given extensive opportunities for repentance, and the people continue to stubbornly refuse and rebel. So when it says they provoke God to bitter anger, don't think of it like, like when you or I get cut off in traffic and we're just this flash of anger. This is a long-standing thing over the course of generations. So, um, David and Saul, 900 B.C., something like that. The people get carried away into captivity under the Assyrians several hundred years afterward. So God has given them centuries and several generations in which to repent, and they refuse. So when it says the Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, what does that mean? What is this idea of blood guilt? Okay. Yeah, think back to the Old Testament law. Did all of the... Um, the sin offerings were meant to deal with the fact that all of their sin brought them guilt before God, right? And so the sin offering was a substitute in the place of them because they owed basically their lives to God because of their sin. And so here's something substituted in their place. And so God is going to no longer forgive their sins on the basis of the sin offering because either they're not offering them or to the extent that they offer them, they offer them hypocritically outside of the context of a relationship with God. And so instead of God forgiving their sin, 
he's saying he's going to leave his blood guilt on him, bring back his reproach to him. Yeah, so uh, Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there's no payment, remission for sin. And so to the extent that um, you, can, you could do the ritual, but unless God accepted the sacrifice, it's, not, it's worthless. And so to the extent that they're practicing idolatry, even though they're still following the ritual, God's saying, I'm not going to forgive you for this because you're not genuinely repenting. You don't mean it. You're, you're worshiping idols. And so, there's not going to be forgiveness. There's, um, again, going back to Hebrews, I think there's a parallel here, right? It, it, there remains, uh, for the one who goes on sinning willfully, there remains no sacrifice for sin but the terrifying expectation of judgment, right? So that kind of concept we see here in the Old Testament. Um, there's a tension here, okay? We are very quick to give up on people. Not always, but a lot of times it's easy for us to say, there's no hope for that person, there's no way that person's going to repent, there's no, um, like, humanly speaking, we have no expectation that person's ever going to change. And we just, we tend to make those impressions and those conclusions fairly quickly, and they tend not to change very much over the course of time. God sees the entire course of someone's life, and we've talked about this before. If we look at, for example, Saul's life, right? So if we look at Saul's life here at the death of Stephen, what would our conclusion be about his relationship to God? Didn't have one. We'd say he's condemned, he's a sinner, like there's no forgiveness for him, right? We come right here, the day before he goes to Damascus, what would we say then? Same thing, right? We come here when he's standing before um, like Herod and like Felix and Festus and then eventually before Caesar. What's our conclusion there? Yeah, and let's say that the course of Paul's life was right here before the end of his life he was to deny Christ, and then he dies. What would our conclusion be at that point about him, from a human perspective? That's, yeah, that, at the, that his profession was not genuine, right? And there's, I think, one of two legitimate biblical options. I would say he never knew him. There are other people who would say that he apostatized from the faith. So, I guess... Um, there's a, there's a difference, I think, between that and saying you can lose your salvation because losing salvation is like, I woke up one morning and I didn't have it anymore, right? But to the extent that someone would say, there are people who would say someone could, could um, abandon the faith. So, so the examples would be like, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Um, all of these other sorts of examples in the Bible of people who... who professed faith, seem to genuinely experience aspects of knowing God, and yet don't have a relationship with God. And so it's clear that at the end of life, if there is a denial of Christ and no repentance, it doesn't matter that there's this part in the middle where everybody around you is convinced that you're following after God.
because God knows the span of your life in from beginning, which is why the concept of persevering in faith with God is important, why we don't feel like we can just sort of coast into heaven. Um, however we explain this segment, if you don't follow God here and you don't finish following God, humanly speaking, we should have no confidence in that person's salvation. Um, so, as we think about this concept here, um, we, um, I guess what I'm trying to illustrate is here in verse 14, this idea of God not forgiving. We sort of have this idea that God will always forgive no matter what. So our practice tends to be we give up on people quickly, but theologically we say, well, God, there's this opportunity for God to, to forgive people, and so if it's for us, we sin, and we're like, well, God, will, there's always this opportunity for me to repent later. When we look at other people, we tend to be much harsher with them. That's the point I'm trying to get at here. Uh, but in reality, God knows the whole span. Sometimes people we would have given up on, God is actually going to save. And the reality is this didn't happen in Paul's life, right? Um, and the reality is for ourselves, we tend to be too easy on sin and think that there will always be an opportunity for us to deal with it. You know, the, the deathbed confession idea, right? And that's not just an idea that people have about trusting in Jesus the first time, right? That's an idea that people who... Um, I don't know Ravi Zacharias' heart, right? But here's a guy who taught the Bible for many years to all accounts appear to follow and walk after God, and then it turns out that he was living in very sinful ways in private for years, right? To the extent that we, as professing followers of God, think that God will just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving, the example of Israel should remind us that sometimes there is an expiration date on God's forgiveness. And to the extent that God says, you can go your own way, that should be extremely terrifying to us. Because we think that that means that it's okay and he's, he's, he doesn't, he's not worried about it anymore. But to the extent that we can sin to a point that our conscience doesn't bother us, God stops sending prophets, roadblocks, people around us to warn us against the sin that we're committing, that's the state that the people of Israel found themselves in. He says, I've sent them to you over and over again. God has been provoked to bitter anger. He's going to leave his blood guilt on him. Okay, before we go into chapter 13, any thoughts on all that? Any questions about that? Yes, Norma. Yes. Right. Yeah? Any other thoughts or questions on what we were just talking about? Bob. Yeah. 
Yeah. And why God doesn't always say yes right away. Right. Yeah. And we can't understand at least I don't think I can we can understand how, you know, he receives a certain amount of glory if somebody gets saved at five and a certain amount of glory if they get saved at eighty five. And in our minds, at least I conceptualize, well, five, they can do more for God. Right. And yet a lot of those five year olds don't always appreciate their salvation. Right. Because they didn't know any difference. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's so hard to say, but when you're praying for somebody that's in their seventies and their eighties, like, All right, Lord, we don't have much time here. Come on. Yeah. You know, we get impatient. So the irony of what I was pointing out here is this should motivate us to pray more fervently for people that we might humanly give up on, and it should warn us personally against living in sin and thinking there will always be an out. And you're like, how can the same thing have the same effect? Because it's a corrective in both directions. The example of the people of Israel is don't live in your sin and think that it will always be okay. The example of what we're going to get to later in Second Peter is if God can at least at some point describe Lot and Sodom as righteous, at least in comparison to the people around him, there is a scenario in which people that we don't expect God to have saved may in fact be saved, like it says in Hebrews, even through fire, just barely like that kind of idea, right? Um, so yeah, uh, verses 1 through 3 here. Ephraim spoke trembling. Okay. Um, the there was is supplied. So, is it possible that he's saying he spoke with trembling or he spoke that produced trembling and fear in others because of his exalted position? It's a little bit hard to know the sense of it, but the point is there's speaking and there's fear, whether it's Ephraim's fear or fear of those around him. Um, contextually, it doesn't seem to be his fear so much because his fear doesn't, at least is not directed the right way, right? Because what's the next phrase? Yeah, so he speaks, there's some kind of fear going on, perhaps a feigned or an insincere repentance, but he continues to exalt himself, and it says, through Baal he did wrong and died. Which, if we think about that in the context of the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't stop there in verse 1. It says, now they send more and more and make molten images. Why did God condemn making idols? There's a bunch of reasons, but what are some of them? Why did God condemn making idols? Read. Okay. So there's a degree to which God condemns making idols because even if we're trying to worship God by means of a picture that we've conceived of, 
it's not going to do justice to God and we're going to worship the thing instead of God himself. Why else were they not supposed to worship idols? Or what things did the prophets rebuke them about in their worship of idols? Brandon? Okay, yeah, it destroys the uniqueness that God's called them out to compare the nations around them. What else, Norma? Yeah, we're only supposed to worship God. So idols are worthless. Paul says in Rome, no, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, idols are worthless. There's a sense in which there's no such thing as an idol. They're empty, they're foolish, which is something the prophets point out a bunch. Shanta? Okay. Yeah. Evan. Yeah. Yeah. Rob. They also are committing their silver and gold to Satan or giving their silver and gold That's a good point. What was the silver and gold supposed to be used for? Yeah, the building, the maintenance of the temple, the support of the work that God was doing through the nation. That, that's an interesting point, too. And instead of that, it's being dedicated to, to ultimately worshiping Satan, as you point out. Okay. Uh, what's this phrase about sa- those who sacrifice kiss the calves? It sounds probably strange to us, but what, what's going on there? Maybe. What what else potentially is going on here? Where are their calves associated with worship, Bob? I was thinking they're they're worshiping something that they made. Okay. Right. They're they're kissing it. They're they're elevating it. It's they made it. It has no power. Okay. So you're saying they're potentially mocking the true worship of God? Um, Eric? Okay. I think, Bob, you're saying there may be the calf associated with their worship in Samaria? Like they're like kissing it and venerating it and like that kind of idea? Or is that not what you were saying? I mean, just, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So whether they're mocking the true worship of God... Um, or um, whether they're sort of exalting their false worship. Uh, I mean, so example of this, um, there are statues associated with Catholicism where the people have venerated it so much that the toe or the finger or the hand or the ear or whatever has been worn away from the statue because generation after generation has come and, and venerated the statue, shown some sort of honor to it. And so it seems to be that there is sort of this, um, the people saying, hey, this is a good and right practice. Let's go kiss the calf, just like you would kiss the ring of the king or, or, or all those sorts of things. This is, this is a good and honorable sort of worship. And what does God say is going to happen? Verse 3, 
There's some pictures here of what they will be like. How many of you have seen uh, fog in the morning? How many of you typically see it persist until the afternoon, at least in this area, like in the mountains or something maybe, but what the sun comes up and the fog disappears, right? Same thing for the dew on the grass. Same thing for chaff after you harvest grain. Same thing, smoke from a chimney. I think there's a lot of parallels here with um, what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is sometimes the word that's over and over again in that book, sometimes translated vanity, but it's really more the idea of breath. So humans are like breath, <sighs> gone. And that can be a... Uh, it's not inherently an evil thing to be temporary and short and fleeting. It can motivate us to make the most of our time. But in this case, it's, it's a description of God's judgment. They're not going to last. So to sum up what we've looked at here, historical picture of Jacob, God brings him to repentance and genuinely following God. Jacob still expresses doubt, still plays favorite, still has multiple wives. Like there's lots of things going on in Jacob's life that are not perfect, despite the fact that he does genuinely have a relationship with God, contends with God, receives a blessing from God. And yet, to the extent that God can work in Jacob's life and bring him from going his own way and rejecting God to being in line with the direction God was taking him, God holds out the same hope to Jacob's descendants. Jacob's descendants say, I've become rich, and it's not God. Their father, Jacob, recognized that the reason for his becoming rich is God has enriched me and taken away from my father-in-law Laban. Right? But the people of Israel, particularly the tribe of Ephraim, say, we have become rich, and it's our own, it's our own doing. We are doing nothing wrong despite all their, all their idolatry. God is provoked to anger, and we would think that there should be repentance, but they do wrong, and they keep doing wrong, and God says they're not going to last. Any, uh, any quick final thoughts here as we wrap up? Mary. Okay. Yeah, which is a good point, because... They, this has been going on long enough that they probably just assume this is the right way to worship. Uh, and to the extent that there are parallels with God's response of anger with the calf when he was giving the law, um, yeah, that's a good point. Anything else? Any other thoughts as we wrap up here? All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll head into the morning service in just a few minutes. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to look at these truths, sobering truths, good reminders that you are a faithful God, both in terms of punishing sin and forgiving it. May we be those who humble and repent and receive your forgiveness and not those who stubbornly persist in sin and find your judgment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.